I know many registrations for the women's retreat have already come in, but there's still time and there's still room, and so let me encourage you to go on and, if you are a woman, register for the women's retreat. Uh, my name's Matt. I'm the pastor here at Friendship, and it's great to be with you. Some of you may remember that two weeks ago, uh, Pastor Kenny was supposed to speak here, and he wound up getting real sick, and so I wound up filling in for him that day. Today... Pastor Jason was supposed to speak here. Can you guess who got real sick this weekend? And so I am uh, the last-minute substitute once again. Now, because I am the last-minute substitute, my friends, uh, there will be nothing coming up on the screen today. No scriptures, no points, nothing will be up there today. And so I want to invite you to right now, Open up in your Bibles or your devices to Exodus chapter 13 and 14. That's going to be our base today, Exodus 13 and 14. And so you can open up there right now. You can open up a, a notes tab in your favorite app on your phone or grab a pen from the seat in front of you and uh, scribble a few notes as we go along. Oh, somebody's got a note right now. Last week, we saw the 10th the plague of Egypt that came upon the Egyptians and was the last straw that brought them to a point where they set Israel free, free from captivity, free from the torment. They set Israel free and Israel headed out of Egypt. We also saw last week, as we look at Exodus chapter 12, that God instituted this ceremony of remembrance. And what was that called? That's right, it's Passover, which Passover then leads into that week-long celebration called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And as we looked at the ways that God told Israel that they needed to regularly focus on their deliverer and his deliverance, we were reminded of how important it is for us to set time aside to regularly focus on our deliverer and our deliverance. Now, in today's chapter, if you look at chapter 13, verses 1 through 16, you're going to see that there are two more ceremonies of remembrance talked about there, and we are going to come back to those verses when we take the Lord's Supper together. For right now, I just want to jump down to verse 17. We're going to start at chapter 13, verse 17 of Exodus, and I want to focus our minds and our hearts on what we can count on every time. I want to focus our minds and our hearts on what it is that we can count on. There are things in this life that we can count on and there are things that we can't count on. The things that we can count on are the things that happen the way that they're supposed to happen each and every time. Some of you in the room got caught up in that messy Southwest Airlines thing that happened over Christmas. Uh, we had a, a coworker here at the church that wound up renting a car and driving a thousand miles back because Southwest not only canceled her and her family's flight, but told her that the soonest that they could fly her out was five days later. So they said, well, we're, we're going to get a car and we're going to make that drive. Her, her trust in Southwest Airlines was like this before that. And now her trust in Southwest Airlines is like this. Uh, but, but even before that, our trust in airlines in general is not absolute, is it? They may or may not get you there on time. 
they may or may not get your bag there. Right? Any of you ever experienced a lost bag? Yeah. <laughs> There's a whole lot of heads shaking. Absolutely. We all have. Do you know why? Because imperfect people run those airlines. And we cannot perfectly trust and count on any organization that is run by imperfect people. Government. Your workplace. Schools. Churches. They're all run by imperfect people. And so we cannot perfectly count on them. God wants us to understand that unlike anything that we experience here on the earth, we can perfectly count on him. That he is totally and completely faithful to everything that he says that he will do. He's not just better than Southwest Airlines. He is perfect in all that he does and completely and totally faithful. And and he shows Israel that in Exodus chapter 13 and 14. And I want us to see that as we walk through this. Let's look at the ways that we can perfectly count on God. Beginning in verses 17 and 18, I want you to see you can totally count on God's plan. You can totally count on God's plan. Verse 17 and 18, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. God's plan may not have made much sense to Israel. There was a common pathway out of Egypt, a fast pathway out of Egypt. And God said, let's not lead them on that common and fast pathway. Instead, we're going to have them wander through the wilderness for a while. And then we're going to get them so that they're right up against the Red Sea and stuck militarily. Didn't necessarily make a lot of sense to the people of Israel. Hey, Hey, there's a mad tyrant back in Egypt. Shouldn't we get out of here as fast as we possibly can? But God saw things that they didn't see. He saw that there were nations waiting for them along that pathway who would make war against them. And he said, if Israel faces that kind of war right off the bat, what are they going to do? They're going to turn around and go right back to Egypt. And 40 years later, when Israel is on the precipice of the promised land and see the people in the promised land, do you know what they do? They say, oh, they're really strong in there. And they vote a committee together to lead them back to Egypt. Forty years later, they're like, yeah, let's go back. God knew what his people would do. And so he takes them on a different path because God knows what is better. God's pathways are always for our best. There are times when we are wandering along God's pathways when, we're, when we don't know what is going on, where those pathways are mysterious to us, where they can even be painful. But in those situations, we can always trust that God has what is best for us eternally in mind as he walks us through those paths. I, I think of the way Jesus showed this to Peter. In one of their first meetings, they're out in a boat together. Jesus tells Peter, let's go out in the middle of the lake in the middle of the day and fish. And professional professional fisherman Peter 
takes carpenter slash rabbi Jesus' advice in order to go out and fish in the middle of the lake when he knows the fish are in the shallows. To go out and fish in the middle of the day when he knows the fish are caught in the evening and at night. And because he trusts in Jesus' plan, even though he doesn't understand it, it's a mystery to him, he is rewarded and realizes, hey, Jesus wants what is best. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, if you love God and you're called according to his purpose, then he works everything together for what is good, eternal good, everything together for what makes us most like Jesus, and we can count on that. You can count on God's promises. Israel sees that here, and we see it in our lives, all right? First thing, we can count on God's promises. Second thing that I want you to see, verse 19, you can totally count on God's promises, right? You can count on His plan, you can count on His promises. I jumped ahead a little bit there for a moment. His plan and His promises. Moses took the, look at verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. Wait, I'm sorry, what is going on here? Uh, We saw last week, when the Israelites left Egypt, they left with all kinds of Egyptian plunder, but that's not all they left with. They left with the bones of Joseph. Because over 400 years before this, in Genesis chapter 50, when Joseph was about to die, he told his family, when God fulfills his promise and brings us back to the land that he has promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, I want you to take my remains from this place and bring me to the promised land. And now over 400 years later, they do just that. Because God made a promise Joseph believed. He he fulfills that promise. And they carry his bones out of there. When God makes a promise, we can trust it's going to happen. Think of how unlikely it seemed this was going to happen during some of those 400 plus years that they were enslaved in Egypt. But God promised it, so it's done. Because everything that God promises is done. He is perfect in fulfilling His promises. I want to encourage you, when when you're spending time in the Word day in and day out, Look for God's promises for you in the Word. Focus on those promises. Spend time reviewing those promises that He has for you. Are there other things in God's Word besides promises? Yes, but there are also a lot of promises that are for you. Now, last week at Core Discipleship, we talked about the fact that there are some promises in the Bible that are not for you. For example, God tells Abraham and Sarah that they're going to have a child in their old age. I cannot claim that promise for myself and at the age of 80, look over and leer at my wife and say, hey, baby, God promises children in our old age. No, that's not the way it works. (laughs) My daughter is so uncomfortable right now. This is great. (laughs) Oh, man, side benefits. Wonderful. That's an individual promise. We we can't just claim the individual promises that are made to people in the Scripture. In the Old Testament, there are all kinds of promises that are for Israel in the land and just for Israel in the land. But 
There are also hundreds of promises in the Word of God that are for us in Christ Jesus. And we need to spend time looking at those, learning those, dwelling on those. If our well-being is attached to our circumstances, which go up and down and up and down, then what are we? We are a people who go up and down and up and down. God says, rather than attaching your well-being to your circumstances, attach your well-being to the constant focus of your mind and your heart upon my promises that are steady and good. We can always count on the promises of God. We can count on His plan. We can count on his promises. There's a third one that's going to start with P. What do you suppose it is? Right? We can always count on God's presence. Look at verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. God's people can always trust that he is with them. He is with the Israelites and they have a cloud of fire and a, and a pillar, I'm sorry, a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud that are a constant reminder to them of God's presence. Later on, we're going to see that that cloud and that fire go behind Israel in order to protect them from the Egyptian army. God is constantly providing for them and protecting them through his presence with them. And the same is true of us. Now, it may be that you are saying, you know, I really would love a pillar of fire, a pillar of cloud to constantly remind me of God's presence. That sure would be nice. But what Jesus says in John 14 through 16 is what you have as a believer in Jesus, is much better than that. He says, you have the indwelling Spirit of God in you. And he says, it is far better to have God in you than God with you. And so we celebrate that the Spirit of God dwells within us. And so God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus says, behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. He is with us, and we celebrate that. I want you to remember, you can totally count on God's presence. Part of the reason that we come together here and meet so regularly and seek to be faithful to coming together as a body here, coming together as a body in our life groups and on and on in our Bible studies is because one of the things that we do is we remind each other of the presence of God. In isolation, the enemy's lies are stronger in our life. The enemy's lies that God's not with you. God doesn't care. God's not around. They grow stronger when we are in isolation. And so we come together and are constantly encouraging each other and strengthening each, uh, each other in the truth that what? God is with us. Right? God is with us. I want you to remember you can totally count on God's presence. His plan, His promise, His presence. Now, as we move into chapter 14, I'm just going to warn you, I'm out of peace. Sorry. 
The fourth thing I want you to focus on is that you can count on God's glory. You can count on God's glory and majesty. Look at the first four verses of chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Piehiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. How many of you wish you were up here reading the names? <laughs> you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Then if you look at verses 5 through 9, exactly what God said is going to happen in verses 1 through 4 happens in verses 5 through 9. Pharaoh says, hey, the people of Israel, they didn't leave. They're just kind of wandering in the wilderness. Let's go get them. And he pursues them, and he finds them trapped up against the Red Sea. What are they going to do? The strategy that God gives to Israel doesn't make a lot of sense from a human perspective. Wander around the wilderness, trap yourselves militarily up against the Red Sea. But he has done that so that his glory and majesty can be on full display. God does that all the time. He brings us to places that don't make human sense so that his glory and majesty can be on full display. He's going to provide a child of promise named Isaac, and he waits until Abraham and Sarah are 190 and well past childbearing years in order to do it. He's going to provide for his people during a, a huge famine so that the chosen line can continue on, and he does so through the enslavement and imprisonment of Joseph. What sense does that make? He wants to save his people from Midianite invasion. And so he tells Gideon, I would like you to have 99% of the soldiers go home. Just take 300 people to attack these thousands. What kind of human sense does that make? But God does these things over and over again that don't necessarily make sense to us so that he can bring all glory and honor to his name. That is God's greatest desire to bring glory and honor and majesty to his name. There is nothing that the Father wants more than that the Holy Spirit would be recognized as God and exalted as such. There is nothing that the Son wants more than that the Father would be recognized as God and exalted as such. There's nothing that the, that the Son wants more than that the Father would... Did I already say that one? Spirit, there we go, would be would recognize that Jesus is God and would be exalted as such, right? Within the Trinity, there is this constant loving, looking out going on that people would recognize God as God and exalt God, glorify Him, and that He would be magnified. That is what we see God doing here. In verse 4, He has done exactly this so that he would gain glory. Verse 18 says the same thing, that he would gain glory. What we see here is that God works these events together in a way that causes the Egyptians to know that he is the Lord. Verse 4. What we see if you look down at 1431 is God works these events together so that Israel sees their God's mighty power and they believe in him and they fear the Lord. 
what we see in the chapters to come is that God works all of this together so that the nations all around know what God did, are amazed by Him, and fear the Lord. God is constantly working for His majesty and His glory so that He is exalted. And so then as His followers, what's our primary motivation in life? Right? If God's primary motivation is His own glory and to exalt His name, our primary motivation in every situation is the same. Our primary motivation when we go to school is not to get an A, but to do whatever we can to exalt Jesus' name the most. Our primary motivation when we're at work isn't to get a promotion. Our primary motivation is to glorify God the most that we can in our workday. Our primary motivation when we're at home isn't to relax to maximum levels, but to do whatever we can in order to glorify and exalt Jesus' name. That is His great desire, and so it is our great motivation. And I want you to remember, you can count on God's glory and majesty. Finally, I want us to remember and focus on the fact that we can count on God's gracious and powerful salvation. You can count on God's gracious and powerful salvation. Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And what did they see? And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out into Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. I, I want to cut Israel a little bit of slack here. They look up, and what do they see? They see perhaps the most powerful army in the world bearing down on them, and they are stuck. They are outmanned. They are outgunned. And they freak out. And they complain about God's plan. And they grumble about the ways that Moses has led them. And I want to cut them a little bit of slack as they look up at the Egyptians. I want to cut them a little bit of slack. But I've read the chapters that come after this. And I recognize that grumbling and complaining and whining is actually their daily MO for the next 40 years. That is what they are going to do. That is what they are going to be known for, complaining and grumbling and whining for the next 40 years. And what, what does God do when He hears them complain about His plan, grumble about where He has led them? He says, you guys aren't righteous. I'm out of here. I'm just going to let the Egyptians overwhelm you. And you're going to be destroyed. No, that's not what God does, is it? What does God do? He stands with this people. In the midst of their mess, He stands with them. Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire, come around to provide protection for His people. He's going to ultimately provide salvation for them. Why? Because his deliverance isn't based on their righteousness. It's based on his grace. We've seen that again and again in this account. 
His deliverance is not based on their righteousness. It's based on His grace. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Clearly, I want you to understand the importance of focus in this passage. Verse 10, they see the Egyptians coming towards them. The Egyptian army is their focus. And God says, stop focusing on, stop seeing the Egyptians. You'll never see them again. Instead, I want you completely focused on me and on my salvation. Because where our focus is makes all the difference. If our focus is on the obstacles, then our life will be filled with discouragement and fear. If our focus is on El Shaddai, God Almighty, then our life will be filled with hope and faith and peace. Where our focus is makes all the difference. And God says through Moses to the people, shift your focus. Stop looking at the obstacle that is oncoming. When we have huge obstacles in our lives, so often they become the consuming focus of our life. Uh, uh, We've got financial challenges. And all of a sudden, all we're thinking about all day long are those financial challenges. We've got relational challenges. And all of a sudden, all we're thinking about all day long are those relationship challenges that we face. Our kids are struggling. And all we can think about is our kids and how they are struggling. And the key for us is to, like the Israelites here, shift our focus from the obstacles that are in front of us to the God who walks with us. Faith never comes by focusing on obstacles, but on God Almighty. We see that with Peter, right? When he is called out to walk to Jesus on top of the water. Jesus called me and I will come to you. His focus is entirely on Jesus. And when he gets out and he begins to walk across the water, the scripture says that at that point he sees the wind and the waves. His eyes shift from focusing on Jesus to focusing on the obstacles that are all around. And his faith fails and he begins to sink. Because where our focus is makes all the difference. This is such an important truth for our prayer lives. Because there are times when we come before God to pray, when all we do is rehearse those obstacles and ingrain them more and more as the focus of our life. We come to God and we say, God, we've got this obstacle. God, will you take care of this obstacle? God, please help with this obstacle. Obstacle, obstacle, obstacle. And by the time we're done praying, what has our focus been? It has been entirely on the obstacle. We're only ingraining it more into the center of our life. But when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, the first half of the prayer that he gives us as our model is entirely about God, his name, his kingdom, his will. Because as our maker, he understands the most important thing for you as my people is that you refocus and have proper perspective. And that only happens when you shift your eyes from the obstacles to me. So he gives us a prayer in which the entire first half is about God before we get to anything going on in our lives. What we're focused on makes 
all of the difference. Faith, hope, and peace are found in focusing on God and His promises. Now, in a very famous scene, God calls Moses to step forward and to stretch out the staff that represents God's presence over the water. And as Moses is stretching out the staff, the pillars of fire and cloud go around the backside of the community of Israel in order to protect them from the Egyptians. As he holds out that staff, we're told that the waters pile up so that they make walls to the right and to the left of the people. The imagery here is of city walls, as a city would have had in this day, that are formed of water to the right and to the left, and the people walk through on dry ground because God's miracle is complete. As the people make their way through at the right time, God removes the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, and the Egyptian army pursues the Israelites down into that tunnel within the water. And as they walk down and wander down into that area, their chariots begin to come apart. They become confused. They begin to struggle. They don't know where to go. What is going on? And all of a sudden, the walls of water are released and wash over the enemies of Israel. And the army of Egypt is destroyed entirely. Verses 30 and 31 of the last two verses. Thus... The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Thus the Lord saved Israel. As we read about these events in Exodus 13 and 14, we can't help but have our minds be drawn to our own salvation. Thus, the Lord saved you. Like Israel, we too were in bondage. Not to Egypt, but to sins and the punishment that rightly goes with those sins. And God has set us free. We too didn't deserve it. Every time we read about the grumbling and complaining and whining of Israel, it is just a reminder of our own brokenness and our own mess and that God has saved us, not because of our righteousness, but because of His grace and His goodness. Like Israel, we too were saved powerfully. In Acts chapter 3, Peter is preaching and he says, if you trust in the Lord, if you place your faith in Him and repent, your sins will be wiped away entirely. Not partially, not mostly, entirely. Romans 8.1 says, all of that punishment and condemnation no longer exists for you if you're in Christ Jesus because you have been saved powerfully. You have been saved completely as the Israelites were. We want to focus on that powerful salvation that God has brought into our lives through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're going to do that around the table. As we take the elements today, we are reminded of our great Deliverer and His deliverance. I want to invite you to just take a moment and bow your heads and prepare your hearts. We've talked about the importance of, of drawing our focus to God and to His promises. 
focusing in on his great salvation. Our sins, his great grace. Take time and think about those things. Spend time with the Lord. As is often our practice, I want to invite you when you're ready to make your way to the tables that are in the corners of the room and to pick up the bread and the cup and then you can come back and I will lead us in the taking of those elements in just a few minutes. Would you stand with me and let's continue to praise the name of our Lord together.